John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What are you going to do with him? I think you should be more worried about what we're going to do with you. Yeah, Jenny, don't worry about me. We got cocaine and coffee here. We're going to get wide and have a big party. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we continue our exploration of the great film, Beverly Hills Cop, at least a film that I truly love. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, my name is John Rokum, a writer, producer, and host uh, here in San Diego, California, and I too am a lover of this movie. And so this is uh, one we are both unified on, Steve, and uh, I'm excited to be jumping back in to find out what happens to Axel Foley, Victor yes. Maitland. Taggart, uh, Rosewood, and Bogomil. And Bogomil. That's and a Jenny. weird name. It's a weird name, Bogomil. I love it. It's, it's memorable, if nothing. I think every name in this whole yeah. series is memorable. Boger, uh, Bogomil, uh, uh, um, as I forget the names, Rosewood, Taggart, and <laughs> Inspector Todd. Yeah, Inspector Todd, yes. Yeah, they're all, they're all good. Um, Mikey, Michael Tandino, these are all, they're all good names. I agree. Um, one thing that I meant to mention back in the first part, and I never did, was years ago, I had read uh, Chuck Jones's, the great uh, uh, animator, oh, yeah. his autobiography, which is called Chuckamuck. And one of the things he talks about is that he had a much easier time writing for Daffy Duck than he did for Bugs Bunny. And the reason that he said is that Daffy Duck is a comic villain, that all the comedy comes from his desires, his greed, his fears, his, and that he does, he's not a good person. And then watching him go through all this stuff is where the comedy comes from. Right. The same is true with Wile E. Coyote. This is not a good person. And the comedy comes from watching them get destroyed. Bugs Bunny is a comic genius is that sure. he strolls through life perfectly and is so far ahead of everybody else in every single way yeah. that it was actually harder to write for him. Huh. And Axel Foley is a comic genius. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, He's absolutely. like Bugs Bunny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He walks into any situation and is just always, you know, like Bugs Bunny, puts on whatever role is necessary to make his way through that situation. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and right now, the situation he's in is that he has been arrested for <laughs> destroying the buffet at the Harrow Club. Yeah. And he's now back in the police station and confronted by uh, Bogomil, who says, This is becoming very irritating. Why are you bothering Victor Maitland? And then Eddie Murphy does this thing that both you and I have talked about that we both really admire is he strips everything away. Yeah. And he just speaks from the heart. I had a friend named Michael Tandino that used to work for Victor Maitland. And Maitland had him killed. I can't prove that right now, but when I do, you'll be the first to know. And then we get a great turn from Bogomil. Forget what you can prove. Talk to me. Yeah. Cop to cop. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and what's so great about and this is, you know, we talked about about him and Todd being antagonists, but they're not bad guys. No, no, no. They're guys who go by the book. So Axel is a challenge to them. But there must be some level of authenticity they sense from Axel instinctively which allows them to believe in him. And certainly Bogomil, having spent way less time with um, 
Axel has even more reason to not believe him, but there's something about his dogged determination in the situation and his willingness to risk the wrath of the Beverly Hills police force that maybe makes him put the guard down a little bit and hear what Axel has to say. And the first thing he uh, lays out is that they found bearer bonds in this warehouse, which are the same kind Mikey had that. And I like um, Bogomil's response. Just because your friend chooses to invest in the same kind of bonds doesn't necessarily mean that Mainland's a killer. <laughs> and it's like, I know Michael Tandino. Mikey was not investing in bonds. <laughs> but he's looking at it through a Beverly Hills cop's uh, point of view. Exactly. Beverly Hills rich people, yeah, investing in bonds. Um, but then the other thing he's talking about is that these crates that aren't going through customs, he thinks he's smuggling drugs. And you witnessed all this. Everything except for the drugs. But I found coffee grounds all over the warehouse. And Taggart still is going, coffee grounds? You said something about that before. Drugs are sometimes packed in coffee grounds. The scent throws off the dogs. Very good, Lieutenant. Now what do we do? And the problem is there's just still not enough information for a warrant. Come on, guys. I know how we can get around. We don't get around search warrants in Beverly Hills. (laughs) And just as he's sending, you know, coming up with a plan for Taggart to check it out, and Eddie is arguing... Up from behind walks this older guy, and that is the chief of police, Chief Hubbard, chief played Hubbard. by Stephen Elliott. Now, do you remember Stephen Elliott? Uh, no. I have a story about him that I heard, but where he else is, do I know him from? What, what else do I know him from? He is um, the father of Arthur's intended, who rejects, who Arthur rejects, and Arthur. Oh my God! And the one who threatens his life. I haven't seen Arthur. Probably since the 80s. How dare you? How a good person, I think. <laughs> established that really very disreputable, can't be trusted. <laughs> no, I, I, he has stuck out to me forever because of his uh performance here and in uh, Arthur, because he is a chilling, chilling dude with a great voice. Yeah. Um, and people with great voices have always stood out to me, and so. Um, seeing him be a part of this uh, uh, is always fun when he shows up. So. Well, then you'll love this story about him. So here's how he got this part. Yeah. So Martin Brest, he had come into audition for some other movie. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And Martin Brest was there in the audition room. And you know this, which is that when you go to audition, you are frequently reading with a casting associate yeah. or a casting assistant. Yeah. And that person might be a fine, fine actor. <laughs> <laughs> and that person might not be. And apparently, which is why, by the way, one of the things, Karen, that was her favorite part of being a casting director is she loves reading with actors. Yeah. This person that that Stephen Elliott was reading was terrible, and he got increasingly frustrated, then got furious, then yelled at everybody in the room for the incompetence of this casting assistant and stormed out of the audition. So (laughs) much so that Martin Brest said he was terrified of this guy. And so when it came time to cast this part, he's like, you remember that guy that scared the crap out of me? <laughs> Let's get him. Yeah, I mean, cause the guy's been acting since the 1950s. So I'm sure he was like, I've been three decades in this business. I've not taken this unprofessionalism. Yeah. And it ended up getting him in the role down the road. <laughs> Surprisingly. And he says, Is this a gentleman who crashed through Victor Maitland's window? Who disabled a non-mock unit with a banana? He manages to be both scary and funny, which is a great combo. Who lured Taggett and Rosemont into a gross dereliction of duty at a striptease establishment? Uh, It's Rosewood, sir. So this, that mistaking the name, is something that happened by mistake in a rehearsal. And the dolly grip leaned into Martin Brest and said, hey, that, that was really funny. You should keep that. (laughs) <laughs> and he did nice and then he calls bogomil to see him in his office much like bogomil called taggart to see him in the office after taggart hit axel foley this the man who wrecked the buffet at the harrow club this morning Lower your voice for christ's sake what can a guy hear me through the wall yeah, yes he, he can, can. Yeah. yes he can <laughs> And Ronnie Cox comes out completely chagrined, and now we have new orders. You're going to take Axel Foley out of town, and if he comes back, they're going to press charges on him to the fullest extent of the law. Steve, this is some great script writing, right? And um, 
this is what's fun doing the show with you sometimes. When we take these things beat by beat, well, it's always fun doing the show, but these moments are great moments sometimes when they happen for me when I'm when we're going beat by beat through, through a movie. And then because I don't usually I don't usually study the script beyond did it work for me when I was watching right. it. But with our show, there are moments that pop up for me. And this is brilliant because Bogomil is just about to be on Eddie's on Axel Foley's side. And boom, here comes uh, Hubbard to yank him back to the other side so that um, uh, Axel has uh, you know even more of a, a hurdle or a mountain to climb. And so just when you thought it was going to go one way, it doesn't. So it keeps the tension afloat for the next few uh, minutes of the movie until we end up at Victor Maitland's house. So this is just some really smart uh, script writing here and the timing. And, and you got to cast someone who immediately comes in unsettles everybody and owns the screen for the few seconds he's on there so that you believe these changes in points of views by the time he's done with the scene. I think that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but now we have the, we're almost there. And then we get a, a sudden reversal. Yeah. Like right when, right when Bogomil's starting to sign on. And the thing that occurred to me is thematically a big part of this is do you color within the lines or do you step out of the lines, mm. you know, and Bogomil has been a do everything by the book. That's yeah, yeah, how yeah. we do it. And then there's this guy, Axel, who is clearly actually isn't. I think he is now convinced this guy is a good detective. Yes, yes. But he moves outside the lines. And Bogomil was right on the edge of trying to help. Yep. And then I don't think, do you think uh, Bogomil feels good about this moment? No. Th that's why he comes out a yeah. little chagrined because he thinks Axel might, have, might be onto something. And maybe, and, and this is all headcanon, but. Maybe he's heard stuff about Maitland in the past. They've been they've never been able to pin anything on him. So here comes Foley to kind of unsettle things because he doesn't go by the book. And so he's done the extra kind of research and found certain things. And so it pains him that he has to follow what Hubbard tells him to do. Yeah. So Billy is going to escort Axel Foley out of town. We cut to the art gallery where Victor Maitland shows up. Oh, very scary. It's a, it's a really genuinely scary scene. The studio wanted to cut the whole scene. What? Oh, the scene is so important. Yeah. Well, it's <sighs> funny that you say that because Martin Brest is in huge battles with the studio about keeping this scene. He's like, it's super important. It yeah. sets up who your villain is, puts your uh, puts Jenny at, under threat. It's creepy as hell. Yeah. And they say, no, we want it out. And then finally, there was another thing they wanted in the movie that Martin Brest absolutely refused to put in the film. Okay. And then he made a deal. <laughs> and that thing we will get to at the end of the film <laughs> okay. that Martin Brest didn't want. Um, and I think... Uh, Victor Maitland does a great job mixing that I'm being totally nice and completely threatening at yeah. the same time. You know, stuff for some of you who are younger than us, you'll go back and watch this movie and you'll be like, oh, he's doing the stuff that everyone's does, a cliche stuff. It wasn't cliche at the time. Yeah. Him grabbing a magazine and pretending to leaf through it to add tension, uh, asking these questions, looking up with those piercing blue eyes um to jenny and and essentially using uh jonathan banks as is just menacing muscle as an aura there over her it's just it all works so well and at the time that was a really chilling scene yeah well and what's interesting and i, I i'm my guess is you don't think about it this way at all but the way i kind of think about it is it's like you got a slider and the slider goes from so for him mm -hmm. he could be completely friendly without any threateningness at all yeah. To totally overtly threatening. Mm -hmm. And for her, she's lying. And the slider is, well, how good a lie is it? Yeah. And how much of the fear she could show a tiny bit of fear, she could throw no fear, show no fear. And it's those subtleties that make this scene so good. Yeah. Is he's threatening, she's doing a pretty good job, but not a perfect job lying. She is afraid. You see him picking up on her fear. Yes. Knowing that she's lying. All that subtlety is what makes the scene play so well. It also adds to the reason why people follow this guy and why you imagine he's successful in business. He can tell the difference between when someone is lying and bullshitting him and when someone's telling the truth. Yeah. So, uh, and he leaves just with the kiss on the cheek, which is just. Oh. It's great, Steve, because it violates her personal space. Yep. It, 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 it immediately puts her in a submissive position. And he's basically saying, I can get close to you anytime I want, yep. even in your office where you have established an illusionary uh, idea of control, 
or respect. I can violate it anytime I want. And I also think he wants to know how much Jenny knows, how deep that Jenny is into this. Yeah. And I think by the end of that discussion, he knows that Jenny's got to go once he's done with Axel. I think he's made a decision right after the meeting that he's going to kill her after he finishes off Axel. I, t- I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, Axel's in the car with Billy, and he is trying to convince him that we should go keep investigating. And Billy's going, I can't. And you see <laughs> Judge Reinhold does a great job of wavering, angry at himself, knows that he's going to fold, and says, All he asked me to do was drive you out of town. Now I'm going to screw that up, too. Billy, I love you. I just fell in love with you. <laughs> We're at the, the art gallery. There's Serge again. It's uh, again. It could still be funny. This movie, because uh, he asked Serge to get him uh, Billy an espresso. You want it with a lemon twist? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. It's no bother. Don't be stupid. It's funny. I just read those lines, and yeah. they weren't funny at all coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Did you notice that? Well, you're not trying to. You know, but I just. That's what's amazing to me. This is a skill. I mean, I'm, I am, I would say, an adequate actor. Okay. You know? Okay. The, one of the many skills I don't have is that there are actors who can take a thing that is not funny at all yeah, yeah, yeah. on paper. And when it comes out of their mouth, it is hilarious. Yeah. That is not a skill I have <laughs> at all. Um, I remember I was in a play once and someone in my director was like, well, just make that line funny. And I was like, which is not a good direction, by the way. <laughs> no, it isn't. And I was like, how funny? How, what did, just tell me what you want to do. He's like, I want you to make it funny. And I just like, I don't, I can't do that. How am I funny? How am I funny? <laughs> how am I funny? Am I like a clown? Do I amuse you? In this scene, what am I doing? But Bronson Pinchot. Yes, very funny. That dude is funny. Uh, yeah, sure, if it's no bother. No, don't be stupid. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I took some time and watched some of the music because I love music videos. I'm a terrible addict to music videos. Mm. And I went back and watched some of the music videos from Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. Uh, and uh, Bronson Pinchot was in the Point of Sisters Neutron Dance oh. video. So I had no idea that the, I thought Neutron Dance was made for the movie. But what you said is that it was already a song on that's, another yeah. album. So the that's fact my understanding. That, yeah. And, and that that makes it even more um, fun that it became a hit because of the movie. So that makes sense that they had a music video connected to the movie because they had probably never released it as a single until the movie came out. So, yeah. Um, which being that, how, how nice would that be? No, no like, shit. Yeah. Like Kate Bush, right? I'm now. just going to say the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so they talk for a minute, compare notes. We head off to the warehouse. Billy is going to wait in the car while uh, Jenny and Axel go in. They go inside. Here's what they did musically that I love. So we've been playing the Axel F theme throughout the whole movie. Yeah. What's playing here is that theme, except all they did was they removed all the instruments, all the tracks from the theme, except the percussion. So you're just hearing that, which sounds really threatening, even though it's really the same theme we've been hearing the whole movie. Yes. Yeah. And they're looking around and they find a crate. They open it up. We find coffee grounds. I like the way it's sealed, by the way. That's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And then he pulls out a plastic bag, tastes it. This ain't sugar. Is tasting the drugs, is that a real thing? I don't know, bro. To be honest, we've seen it in so many yeah. things. And how it, it doesn't tasting it, doesn't that imply, doesn't that affect you at least a little bit? Or have you built up a tolerance or just a little bit taste is enough? I've never done Coke, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to make any comments about what I have or haven't done. <laughs> but I do know that. If someone hands me a bag of powder from a box, I wouldn't put it in my mouth. It could be fucking detergent. You know what I mean? Like it oh, could yeah, be sure. poison. It could be, or yeah. it could be like, there's things like now with fentanyl and things like that, that are oh, so yeah. strong. It doesn't take long to really do some serious damage, you know? But in the 1980s, so, all we had was Coke, Coke yeah. and flour. That's all. I guess that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then just at the moment that we've, caught victor Maitland. essentially there is a gun to eddie murphy's head welcome to the party outside rosewood in the car is watching as victor and the rest of his guys go into the warehouse and he is freaking out uh inside zach and victor show up the it's a great threatening bad guy scene yeah yeah Jeanette, i just can't tell you how disappointed i am to find you here 
Pedro, listen. Shut up! That exactly what you're talking about. That but that he can go from zero to chilling in a second. That shut up is so unsettling, man. Yeah, because that's all pretense is gone now. Right. You know, like I was pretending to be nice before. Yeah. Now I am a bad guy who's going to kill you. So there's this weird moment where there's this silent moment where he turns, Victor Maitland turns away from Jenny and then gives Eddie a look and kind of backs off. Yeah. And it's a really interesting reaction shot. Mm -hmm. That shot is from Eddie Murphy improvising something that they chose to take out of the movie. Oh, wow. But he had, but, but the Steven, whatever his name is, I forget the actor's name. Yeah. Burkhoff. Um, uh, had such a strong reaction to whatever the hell that Eddie said was that they used it in the silent moment and it totally works. Huh. Wow. Uh, that is that is smart editing there. Yeah, absolutely. Take her to the car and wait for me, okay? What are you going to do with him? I think you should be more worried about what we're going to do with you. And I love Eddie's line. Yeah, Jenny, don't worry about me. We got cocaine and coffee here. We're going to get wide and have a big party. Thanks for having me over, Vic. This is very nice. And then they're out. Billy watches them take her out. Yeah. This is getting really bad. I don't know why he doesn't just call in to the cops at this point. Well, he's not supposed to be there. Yeah, so I guess. No, you're right. Yeah. But but I, you know, you got to give credit to Judge Reinhold. You know, a guy who's kind of never got his just due for all the stuff he did in the 1980s. He's part of some really great films. Yeah. Um, his reactions could have easily gone into caricature or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what do they call that? Pantomime. Um, but he's so honest and earnest in his reactions that you're along with him with the big eyes and the totally. back and forth and the mouth half open. You're totally in on, on the whole situation with him. And you're like going, come on. It's like Vader throwing through the shaft already. You're just like, come on, get out of the car. You know, it, it, your, your point when we started about these being all such great actors, yeah. uh, it, it makes such a big difference because we really genuine care, genuinely care about Rosewood. Oh yeah. Um, and understand him. Mm -hmm. uh, we're back with Victor, Zach, and Axel, and I love the moments with each of them. If something happens to her, I'm all ears. I'll kill you. Really? That would be a neat trick. And then there's kind of a look to Zach, which is the, okay, I want you to kill him sort of look. Yeah. And then it's Zach and Axel who says, Well, cuz, are you still pissed at me? No, no, but I should have taken care of you in Detroit when I popped you a little buddy. <laughs> I think Jonathan Banks does such a great job here. Yeah, man, I agree. It's man. It always makes me wonder if like how many actors are fantastic and are just never got that part. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, but the great ones stick around, man. Cause, cause directors and casting directors really champion them and fight for them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's what happens too, is that they develop a relationship. The actors do with these casting directors. So as they age and these new directors come in and these new projects show up, you know, they're one of the people they think about to bring them in for stuff like this. And, and of course, breaking bad, which no one thought was going right. to be this massive hit, the Malcolm in the middle dude, you know, no one thought that. But as it grew, him coming in, and now he's been such an essential part of Better Call Saul, and he's such a badass. I mean, and, and even though he's looking decrepitly old, yes, he still scares you. He's still scary. I, it's so funny because I think, to me, it's like the uh, the iceberg principle of like how much is actually under the water that we oh, ever yeah. see. Yeah. Is that I to like do think casting directors do recognize talent, and I do think that if you stick around long enough sometimes they do actually you find the spot yeah the question i i'm more and more having is like how big is the attrition how many people beat mm -hmm. their head against the wall for a decade right and they are just as talented as jonathan banks or any of these other people and then that was it and they had a kid and they had to go get a job and they stopped doing it you know and how many people and it, it used to be that i was like look if you're really talented and you work hard it's gonna happen and now i'm like no the odds are actually it's not gonna happen and I bet there are a lot, a lot of actors like this. Oh, probably. Who it just never happened for. And there were these performances, you know, or you think of, um, what's his name, who's in Whiplash? Um, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons is another one. There are all these yeah. actors who have just been around forever and just needed someone to give them a role. Yeah, we're, we're rewatching um, some Law and Orders from season 10. And that's mm-hmm. 1999. And J.K. Simmons is like the new psychiatrist that takes Olivet's place. And he's only occasionally recurring on the show. So he's not even anywhere near where he's where he's going to be, where he's at now. And that was 1999. So, yeah, yeah you just... You hope you keep plugging away. You hope the opportunities are there to keep you alive. You hope you get the insurance. You hope you don't have to take a regular job or another job, regular job. Um, And you can stay in the fight. You know, Uh, that's the game. And character actors, I think, Steve, to be honest with you, I think character actors have a much higher percentage of higher possibility of sticking around. Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're, you know, it's different. Like Travolta had to be saved by Tarantino. Tarantino doesn't save Travolta. We're just watching him doing straight to DVD shit for the rest of our lives, man. Well, the 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 ingenue, they have a window. Oh, yes. You know what I mean? Like oh, if yeah. you're the if your thing is to be the beautiful starlet or the beautiful young actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not easy. You gotta 10 years tops. Yeah. That if you don't hit then, because the slightly older beautiful actor, yeah, that's there are not as many parts for that character. No. Um, but Needless to say, Zach gives uh, Axel a few hits to the belly. Then he heads out. Billy watches Victor Maitland and Zach get into the car, continuing to react. I love him starting to get out, stopping, starting, stopping. Damn it, damn it. And then he finally gets out of the car, crosses the street. Yeah. And now we're with Axel and the other henchman who asked him about the bump he gave him in the head in Detroit. And we're with Rosewood who enters. He's sneaking into the space. And then draws his gun which by the way they gave him a very small revolver because <laughs> he's young. compared to like what victor maitland has later on yeah uh and he sees uh foley getting beaten and says freeze and they open fire and he kills a guy and eddie takes two more guys out yeah with the cheesy knocking him into the crates punches <laughs> yep uh and they head out um, and now uh, Rosewood is on the radio and says, tell Taggart, check out the warehouse at that address. I'll explain later. But of course, Taggart is there. Shit! Billy, what the hell is going on? I'm sorry, Sarge. I can't talk now. What do you mean you can't talk now? Just check out the warehouse and please don't say anything to Bogomil. Shit, what's the matter? <laughs> and I love his Taggart's response. It's Billy. He's doing something dumb again, but I don't know what. And then they asked for the car's location, which, by the way, GPS did not exist in cars. No. Uh, Martin Brest just thought that sounded like a cool technology that the Beverly Hills Police Department might have. Oh, really? It wasn't yeah. even a real thing. No. Oh, how funny, man. Yeah. Oh. I thought they could track, like, the, you know, the uh, intercom or the microphone in the car, but I guess. Uh, that's what they said, is that apparently, no, this really didn't exist at the time. <laughs> um, we're at Ma- Maitland's house. Uh, Foley is picking the lock of the gate. Taggart was able, everyone got here immediately. Yeah. Taggart um, certainly got here in like six seconds and shit. It's, yeah, literally. Everything he said about Maitland is right. Now he's kidnapped a woman and he's got her in this house. Well, let's go in there and get her. The fuck do you think I'm trying to do here? You're not doing anything. We'll handle this. We'll have a search warrant here in 20 minutes. She could be dead in 20 minutes. Stop working on that lock. You're coming with us. Look, man, I'm going to open up this door and I'm going inside. You want to stop me? Shoot me. It's great. I think Eddie plays all this stuff great. Yeah. Great. And then the key moment is Billy says, me too. Billy? Really, Sarge, you can do what you want, but I'm going in with Axel. God damn it, Billy, this is really serious trouble. If you're lucky, you'll just get fired. I love how we've set up this relationship. Oh, yeah. Right? Because Taggart is the by-the-books guy, the grumpy guy, the yeah. person who's more against Foley, less trusting, and that Billy is going to do the right thing, and Taggart has to go with him. And it makes sense too, doesn't it? Because the young people do take the chances. The young yeah. people do kind of don't see the bigger picture most of the time. It's not, it's not a criticism. It's just how you are when you're young. Uh, well, whereas, you know, uh, Taggart has been on the job for a while. He knows, like, there's a pension to worry about. There's all kinds of stuff. Billy's like, oh, I can get another job. You know, whereas Taggart has years on the force. So it's, it's a different approach. But you're right. They work so well together. Great chemistry. The young and the old. Um, uh, and I wonder when you say, you know, you, you brought up that line earlier, oh, Billy's doing something stupid. I'm curious about how many stupid things Billy has done in the past that Taggart's had to kind of deal with or, or pull him from. And the fact that he's this adamant that he's right, maybe that's what win Taggart's over there, wins Taggart over there a few seconds 
after this exchange. I, I think absolutely. Well, and I think that doing something stupid is that Taggart's job has been to teach the young guy mm-hmm. and to overcome his naivete and the stuff he doesn't understand. But here's the other thing I was thinking yeah. about. Taggart does not fit into the Beverly Hills Police Department. No. You know what I mean? Right. Taggart seems like a cop that would fit in much more as a detective in Inspector Todd's police department. That's a great point. He's more of a blue-collar guy. Yeah. Um, Taggart whereas- punches Foley in the stomach. That's right. Twi- yeah, you're right. He does. You're right. He does. Yeah. I think Taggart has been felt restrained by all this by-the-book crap. Yeah. Uh, maybe Taggart was moved there because, you know, stuff in the past in other departments – and there, and to order to save his job and save his pension or whatever, he was moved to the Beverly Hills Department. It's like a last stop. Like if you don't make it work here, you're mm. you're not going to make it work anywhere. And so that's why he's had to kind of adhere. And they put him in the most strict place so that they could have the most extreme reaction from him to follow the rules, you know. And so that would make a lot of sense to me. And you're right; I'd never thought of that. But Billy absolutely looks more like a Beverly Hills cop, you know, tall, white, skinny, all of that. Whereas Taggart is a little more, he's a little older, a little more of a paunch, a little more of a grizzled presence. That's not necessarily a Beverly Hills cop uh, that you would think of as a Beverly Hills uh, detective. You know what I just thought of is, you know what movie, and I obviously there's no evidence of this anywhere and I'm making all this up, but what movie I think young Taggart really loved before he became a cop was that. The French Connection. <laughs> he watched Popeye Doyle. And he's like, that's what I want to do. What's that? What's the line in um, Reservoir Dogs? Oh, you must be a big Lee Marvin fan. <laughs> exactly. And he's had to crush all the Lee Marvinness in his soul. Yeah, yeah exactly. Until this moment, because at this moment, he says, shit, wait a minute. And he goes to the trunk and gets a shotgun. Yeah. I love that moment. I love it. <laughs> Well, you spoke about it in the first part, how that's, you know, the fact that there are, tr- uh, um, Brockheimer was it, or Simpson had the, you know, yeah. the trunk full of uh, weapons. So, yeah. Well, and I love that this is, this is, you know, for me, Bruce Willis turning back in to save, uh, what's his name in Pulp Fiction, you know, oh, yes. uh, yeah, Big Rain. Yeah. It's, well, and it's Han Solo coming back to rescue Luke. It's like yeah. the moment where this character who's been on the fence is all in. Yeah. And then in the Beverly Hills police station, Pokemon comes up and goes, Where's everybody? And starts to ask questions of the radio operator. Yeah. Now Maitland is watching on the monitors and says, Foley's on the grounds. Well, how the hell should I know? Get some people out there right away. You think that's Zach on the phone with him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally think so. Um, by the way, this was all supposed to be a night shoot in the script. Oh, and night shoots are just more expensive and they said you know what it's gonna be too because you gotta light it all it takes a lot more time it's more dangerous let's just do it in the daytime and they did it totally for budget reasons and when they got in post martin breast went it's so much better yeah because daytime is better for comedy you know and it's it seems more beverly hills if if it had been nighttime it would have been more scary and more intense now uh back at the police department bogomil's getting stressed out and trying to figure out where taggart and rosewood are Taggart and Rosewood are just on the other side of a tall wall. <laughs> Literally, Martin Brest just said, you guys have to get over this wall. What are you going to do? And all of this is them just improvising. So funny, man. It's really, really funny. By the way, Martin Brest had never shot a big shootout before. Oh, really? So he was really nervous about this. So what he did, uh, which is exactly, it's exactly what I would teach my students. The two days before, he just walked up and down every single place in this location, thinking about where is the camera going to go? Where is the action going to be? Is this going to be a dolly? Going through all of his shots. Right, right. Apparently, they shot a ton of stuff that they ended up not using. He probably overshot it, probably because he was really stressed out. Well, I would be, too, if I had a coin flip decide my future. That's a great point. Um, (laughs) I love we cut back and Taggart and Rosewood are still trying to get over the wall. Uh, Jax, my son, is at this point yelling. It's like, have the lift up the lighter guy. Why are you trying to lift up the heavy guy? (laughs) Did you explain to him because it would make it harder for the lighter guy to lift the heavy guy? (laughs) Maybe. Over the wall? Yeah, I guess so. Well, and it's like the steps were just around the side. We saw Eddie Murphy just run up the steps. Yeah, that's true. Eddie looks up and watches as Taggart struggles to get over the wall, manages to push him over, and Eddie's laughing just as a machine gun opens fire. Oh, and I love that Tiger goes, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> that, I feel like that line is speaking more than just the situation. 
Yeah. Like, as we just talked about, like, why am I in Beverly Hills? Why am I in this department? Why am I dealing with this case? Why am I dealing with Foley? Why have I been given Rosewood as my partner? What am I fucking doing here, man? It's an, I feel like it's an existential moment in, in the middle of this big gunfight uh, for, uh, for Taggart's, which I think is great. <laughs> um, there's a nice little Eddie running and does a big role. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, does kind of the Captain Kirk role and then fires and kills a guy. Apparently, at this point, Eddie just refused to do that role. He's like, I don't, I'm just too dangerous. And Martin Brest said, I'll tell you what, if I can do it and don't get hurt, then you'll do it. And Eddie oh. goes, okay. So Martin Brest did the role first. Yeah. And? It was fine. And then Eddie had to do it. <laughs> now, we see Bogomil putting his weapon in his holster. Put it down to 998. Officers need assistance. Undercover's on scene. Sir? Just do it. He knows that he's been trapped into this situation yeah. where he has to now respond. I think he's already coming up with the report uh, on his drive over there in his mind. They're pinned down and Billy just stands up with his badge out and says, Police! You're all under arrest! <laughs> in the open fire. You do that again, I'll shoot you myself. <laughs> Cop cars are coming. Axel is now inside the mansion. Apparently... This is what's funny. The movie came in under budget, but all that Martin Brest talked about was how out of money they were. Me? So I think possibly the studio had lied to Martin Brest about how much money he had. Because this is what he said is they got this location. Yeah. And the goal was they were going to pull all the furniture out and redress it with beautiful art because this is an art dealer's house. Yeah. But they ran out of money. So this is just the, the furniture that was in the house that they rented. And they hated it and felt it didn't look like an art dealer's house. Right. I never had a problem with it. I, uh, how um, many like 10 people would have a problem with it yeah i i agree and now our first battle is axel's moving through the house is with zach with jonathan banks yeah and at first they miss each other axel fires blind zach has disappeared um then zach appears fires axel dri dives out of the way and we cut to rosewood and billy still pinned down you know what i keep thinking about you know the end of butch cassidy what a terrible thing to say to the guy. Really? I'm going to make you pay for this. <laughs> Zach is looking around. He turns, and there is Axel kneeling, and he shoots Zach, and that's the end of him. Yeah. And then, we just at the moment, we feel pretty good. There's a gunshot. Axel hit in the shoulder. And now we see Victor Maitland. Yeah. With a very, very big gun. Yeah. It's a magnum moment. It looks like a magnum. Uh, yeah, I think it's like a 357. I'm not a gun guy, but that's I, it neither am I. Yeah. Um, and at this point, the security guys go, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you want to stick around? I'm not sticking around. And cop cars come slamming through the gates. The security guys jump in a van. And this van drive, this took them like half a day to shoot wow. um, of just driving the van and crashing it into this fountain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this was on the same day where they had to shoot the whole final scene with the chief of police where uh, Bogomil gives his report. And it ended up that they ate up 80% of the day trying to get this van shot. And then they had almost no time to film the final scene. Oh, wow. That's where that's where you really need an AD to say, listen, we got to we got to move this along. This is we, we're running out of time here. Let me ask you about this. The guys are taking off. And the cop car shows up. Have we gotten to that part yet? Where they yeah, that's where we are. I think watching it now, that whole sequence threatens to destroy the nice balance the movie has established between serious stuff and funny stuff. When you have cop cars slamming into each other, all I'm thinking is Blues Brothers instead of competent police force. Um, so to me, when I was watching it, it struck me for the first time that it's an unnecessary thing to have that I don't think they needed to have the shots of the cars slamming into themselves and, and what have you. Um, the guy veering off into the fountain. That's great. It's pressure and fear or whatever, but the cop car slamming into each other, I thought was a bit comical. That wasn't necessary. I hadn't thought about it at all. I totally agree. Yeah. A hundred percent. You remember the thing I said, I was trying to articulate it about Beverly Hills cop three yeah. where they made the world funny rather than yes. Axel being funny. That's what this is. Yeah. Is is the whole key to the movie is that the world is essentially normal. Yeah. But Axel and to a lesser extent, Billy and Taggart or Serge, they're funny characters, but the world isn't funny. Yeah. You know, and that cop thing, it's totally right. It's totally Blues Brothers thing. Yeah. And then Bogomil has showed up at this location. Victor has Jenny held hostage. Be careful, old boy. It might hit me. And 
right at the moment that Bogomil appears. Freeze! Jenny elbows Victor Maitland, clearing him just for a moment for Axel and Bogomil to both open fire. Yeah. Killing Victor, who tumbles bloody down the stairs. That's another part. I don't think we needed him to bloody down the stairs. Just him lying against the wall with shots in him would have been enough. It's, yeah. It was a weird ad to throw him down the stairs. I don't understand what the point of that You was. know what it is? It's funny. I'm, I'm really glad you pointed this out because mm. the two things are the opposite problems. One is yeah. they made the world too funny. Yeah. And it went too far in that direction. The shot of him going down the stairs is way more what you would have seen in the Stallone version of Beverly Hills yeah. Cop. Oh, good point. Yes. It went too violent. Yeah. yeah, yeah you yeah. know? Yeah, I agree. Because Jonathan just fell forward. Yeah. With some sort of wood on his body and died. But and I, I, I don't think any either of these are major problems. No, 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 no. But they're just like slightly off. Yeah. And then all the cops have showed up. The bad guys are basically toast. And at that moment, Billy jumps up again and says, Police! You're all under arrest! Lay down your weapons in front of you and take two steps back with your hands up! Very good. Great. Just when we feel good about it, up walks the chief of police. What's this man doing here? Bleeding, sir. <laughs> and Bogomil says, Wouldn't you like to hear my report first, sir? You have a report that explains all this. Yes, sir. So here's the thing that Martin Bress said is that so he's pretty much rewriting the movie every night and then shooting during the day. Right. Right. So I don't know when Martin Bress is sleeping, having done some of that, because like on Stonebrook, I was rewriting every night and then we were shooting every day. Uh, it's not easy on a human. No. Um, but what they said is disproportionately, the pressure fell frequently on Ronnie Cox. Like he would get new pages every time he showed up to set and have to do them a half hour later. Wow. This whole speech, this whole explanation was written right before they shot it. <sighs> so now we're at the end of the day that we've wasted most of the day because we're shooting this van thing. Yeah. And we have to shoot this thing with, where Ronnie Cox has to deliver this whole monologue that he just got shortly before. And we have to get for, – for this scene to work, you have to have reactions from everybody yeah. because you have to have everybody listening to what he's saying and react to it. And so there's – he got every single camera they had. He got everyone that could possibly run a camera. They're all filming at the same time. They have this, you know, I don't know if the sun is going down, but they are definitely running out of time on the set. And Ronnie Cox has to deliver. And what everyone said was that they were amazed. He never drops a line. He never, he was just a, always a pro, always did what was necessary with no matter how much pressure there was on the set. Wow. And then he gives a report about Jenny thought there was cocaine at this location. She told Axel. Axel was part of a Detroit Joint Task Force investigating narcotics trafficking, which is obviously a lie. Yeah, which is somehow the chief did not know was happening. But yeah. yeah, that it was kept secret from him, and he didn't tell him in the previous scene where, <laughs> right. where they said to kick him out of town, so that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and having probable cause to believe a felony was in progress, Sergeant Taggart joined Rosewood with Detective Foley present only as an observer and proceeded to enter the grounds. And in the course of defending ourselves, we shot several suspects, including Mr. Maitland. You expect me to believe that report? This is a great line. That's the report I'm filing, sir. That's a great line. Yeah. And um, the chief does a great acting job here where he just kind of assesses him and then looks over at Taggart and asks Taggart's point of view. Uh, if that, Why don't you tell me the truth, Taggart? And he does a great look to the chief. And look back, and then just to kind of simply... Happened just like the lieutenant said, chief. <laughs> well, and remember, in the super cop story, when Bogomil asked Taggart, is that what's happened? Yeah. He, he didn't back up the super cop story, but he does back up this story. Yeah, yeah. Learned his lesson. And the chief exits, and there's a pause, and then Eddie smiles and says... You were lying your ass off. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, just like in Detroit, where Inspector Todd is trying to get him to go to the hospital, now Bogomil is trying to get yeah, Axel right. to go to the hospital. The shot. I was wondering if you could, like, do me a favor, sir. I think your favors are all used up. I understand. It's just that I was hoping that you could, like, call in my Inspector Todd, my boss, back home and straighten things out for me. But that's all right. And, and then, again, this is the Bugs Bunniness of his character, because when he doesn't think he's going to get that, he goes, I think I'm going to stay in Beverly Hills. I like it out here. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my own private investigation company. How's that sound? I will talk to Inspector Todd first thing tomorrow. Will you really? Yes, you bet. Cut to the hotel. 
Axel's checking out. There are Rosewood and Taggart. By the way, the desk clerk who is yeah. behind the desk is Martin Brest. Yes. Director. Yes. Excuse me. The Beverly Hills Police Department is picking that up. Oh, get out of here. It's really nice. <laughs> sure is, because I don't think Axel could have paid this. No, I, I wondered what he was reaching for in his pocket. Because yeah. it's no way he's reaching for the money for it. No way. Do you sell those Beverly Palm robes down here? Yes, we do, sir. They're $95 a piece. Well, money is no object. Put them on my tab. I have to have two of them, though. Oh, so good. And I love his presentation. Billy, you saved my life, okay? I don't think I'll ever be able to repay you, but as a token of my appreciation, I want you to have this fine Beverly Palm robe. <laughs> and Billy is truly touched. Yeah. Despite the fact that the Beverly Hills Police Department is paying for it. <laughs> this is for you. No, that's all right. You keep it as a souvenir. I already have three of them in my bag. We're outside. I was thinking about stopping off and getting something to drink, though. Yeah, we sort of figured you would. That mean you guys are going to join me? And now Taggart has turned. Well, I don't think one beer's going to kill us, Billy. That's right. Listen to Taggart here, Rose. We'd lighten up, all right? Where are we going, anyway? Don't worry about it. Just follow my lead. Another perfect place. You guys will love it. Trust me. And on Trust Me, there is a freeze frame. Yeah. The freeze frame is what Martin Brest did not want in his oh. movie. He's right. The freeze frame turns it into a 1970s TV cop show. Yep. Yeah. It is cheesy. It is a cheat. Trust me is great as the last moment. Yeah. The freeze frame is not great. But this is, you know, welcome to work making movies is you have to make a compromise. And he went, it's more important that I have this scene in the gallery with Victor Maitland being scary than it is having the freeze frame. Trust me. Yeah. You know? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. You, if, you've, if you've directed the well, the movie well. You're not going to lose the audience on a freeze frame. The movie premiered in first place. It was number one for the next 13 straight weeks. Insane. Was out of number one for a week, then back to number one. It made $234 million. It was the highest grossing film released in uh, 84. Wow. Um, by the way, adjusted for inflation, it is the third highest grossing R-rated movie of all time. Wow. Behind The Exorcist and The Godfather. That's incredible. Isn't it? That one surprised me. Yeah. And there's definitely at least one sequel. At least one sequel, yes. Yeah. And there's some TV movie that they try to do as a sequel. And I think there's a rumor that other people might be... I. It's probably not going to happen. I, let's just say yeah. that there's not a fourth sequel. There's not. Yeah. Yeah. I love the second one, too. But anyway. I... I I put the second one very much with Die Hard 2, which is I loved it when it came out. And then I think it's better than Die Hard 2. It is better than Die Hard. It is. But but the more watching, I was like, oh, the here's they're repeating that joke and here they're repeating mm, that oh, joke. Oh, yeah. And here they're, you know, it's a lot of the same beats. I haven't watched it in a long time. I, I, I'd actually like to watch it again. Yeah, that's fun. Um, I, I don't know if I could come up with final thoughts other than <laughs> I totally like this movie. It's really fun. It's t it's not a perfect film, I don't think, but top to bottom, I really enjoy it. And I, it's you know what? I, here's what I will say. Yeah, I put forward this theory several times now about most comedians only get a certain number of movies at the top of their game. Yeah, I really wish we had more of this Eddie Murphy. I wish we had had five more movies at this level with him. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, final thoughts are this. This is a fantastic movie um that still holds up all these years later featuring uh a performer who is about to ascend to his zenith as a performer and you're seeing why this man endures in people's minds still to this day in 2022 people hold out hope that we'll get the old eddie either in stand-up or in movie performances a comedy that'll really kind of knock our socks off that the uh, sarcastic, sharp witted, um, always one step ahead. Eddie Murphy can come back for at least one more movie. Uh, and um, this is one of the reasons why this movie right here, 48 hours is another trading places and uh, coming to America. All four of those movies are the reasons why people who live through that time um, want this Eddie to come back. And this, you could argue Coming to America is his best comedy, but I would argue that this could possibly be his best film because of the 
director, Martin Brest, who's fantastic, but also the um, performance from Eddie Murphy dramatically and comedically in this film uh, is so believable. And at such a young age, it's incredible to see the command he has on screen of his of his presence and who he is. And not a lot of young actors can do that, especially not a, not a lot young comedian stand-up actors can do that. And Eddie could. So enjoy this movie for the time capsule that it is. Um, and um, we're seeing the return of these kinds of movies slowly but surely in the multiplexes. So, you know, it shows you that there's still a taste for these kinds of movies. And thank God that there is. Um, it's funny. I think I totally agree that Coming to America is probably his most successful comedy. And I do think this is his best film. Um, and by the way, one thing I, th- I said it in the preview, but I don't know that I ever said it in the course of this podcast. Mm. Eddie was 21. 21. Yeah. I mean, just take that in for a moment. The command that he has is incredible. Um, So uh, that's what we think of Beverly Hills Cop. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and we would love to hear what you think. Visit us on our Facebook page. Search for us on Twitter at at, uh, Cine underscore files, Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. These are all orders. I am using the, what is it, the declarative tense? I forget what it is. Sure. Yes, that you must subscribe on Spotify. You must subscribe also on YouTube. Subscribe at all the places. You don't have to listen to it at all those places. Just subscribe at all the places. Leave your reviews at all those places. Give ratings at all those places. That's what you could do to become a true cinephile. And while you're at it, visit cinephiles.net. And don't just buy Beverly Hills Cop and every single movie you've ever reviewed. There's refrigerators, televisions, washing machines. I think there's some nice clothes, a good pair of shoes. There's all sorts of things you can buy through Amazon.com by stopping first at cinephiles.net. And when you're done with that and you've got a little bit of extra cash, you're going to go over to patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you will become a patron of the show because you really do want to listen to the cinephiles show help make suggestions about movies that we want to do in the future and interact in other ways that we have on patreon.com slash the cinephiles and after you're done with that you will follow me on twitter at sr morris and on instagram at sr morris one despite the fact that i basically never post there and you will also subscribe to enterprise incidents with scott and steve so you can listen to star trek stuff john what will our listeners do for you i hope that they will follow me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch, uh, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, um, and also my other podcasts, the, uh, top 10 and the geek buddies that are out there for you all to enjoy, uh, in the world today. So there you go. There you go. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back next time for not only another great film, but if all things go properly, another great eighties comedy, right here on The Cinephiles.